0: Hello, and welcome to the Oxford Cybar podcast for November 2011. This month, we are pleased to present Professor Frank Close, who's going to talk to us all about neutrinos. Enjoy! Hi, thanks all for coming out tonight, and in case you don't know, we're the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. We run monthly SciBars here at Port Mahon and it's our pleasure to introduce tonight Professor Frank Close, who's not only an eminent physicist, he's also a past Vice President of the British Science Association, and as well, he's a committed science communicator and has won the Kelvin Prize and Medal, as well as an OBE for his contributions to the public understanding of science. And we were quite lucky to have a timely talk, because as probably most of you know, neutrinos have been quite famous lately with their potential for faster-than-light travel, and I'm sure Frank will talk all about this. So I'll hand this over to him now. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to say anything at all about neutrinos going faster than light, but I'm sure you're going to ask lots of questions about it. The first tricky thing will be to decide where to put this. So that just... Is there a clip on this? I'm a theorist, not an experimentalist. Is you now be clear. Right. Well, thanks very much. Um, what I will just do is give did some background. This book, Neutrino, that was the background to asking me to come here, is the result of uh, an obituary that I wrote in The Guardian in 2005 of a man called Ray Davis. And uh, Ray Davis spent 40 years of his life trying to detect neutrinos coming from the sun, and people thought that he'd tried to do something that was impossible. And it nearly turned out to be. But anyway, when he died, he, he won the Nobel Prize at the age of 87, it took 40 years before the whole business got sorted out. So when he died, I was asked to write the obituary of him, which I did. And then I was surprised that I won a prize for this, which was the best science writing in a non-scientific context. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, I mean, Ray Davis's obituary really wrote itself, because his story was fascinating. And I then decided to write it in this little book. And you start off writing a book, you have an idea in your head what it's going to be about. And then you often discover along the way that other things unexpectedly turn up. And that's actually what happened in doing this. And that I discovered that behind the scenes, there was, well, two or three other people. But one in particular, a man called Bruno Pontecorvo. I don't know if anybody here has ever heard of this man's name. No. Um, He could have won up to three Nobel Prizes, which nobody else has ever done. And because you're all so young, you see, if you have been my age, you'd know that there was this tremendous thing just after I was born. Uh, How many people here have heard of Klaus Fuchs, the atom spy? That's right. People of a certain age are putting their hands up and (laughs) nodding, right. Um, In 1950, Klaus Fuchs, working at Harvard, was exposed for having been sharing, in quotes, the secrets of the atom bomb with the Soviet Union. And uh, he was arrested. And then three months later... Bruno Pontecorvo, who was also working at Harwell, disappeared off the face of the earth with his family. And it was a core celebrity. If you go to Google and put Pontecorvo in, you can read the newspapers from 1950. Nobody knew what was happening. Everybody was wetting their pants. Was this another atom spy uh, that had gone from Harwell? What what had happened? It was six years before anybody knew what had happened, though they strongly suspected he'd gone to the Soviet Union. And that happened exactly halfway through his life which is the reason why I'm now researching a book whose title we called A Life of Two Halves. I was going to call it Half Lives, but that's a bit too funny. Um, But as we will see in a minute or two, um, he had some very important ideas about neutrinos. And the fact that he fled or defected and ended up in the Soviet Union stopped him certainly winning one Nobel Prize, potentially a second one, and as we'll see, unfortunately he didn't live long enough share in Ray Davis's. So I thought I'd just set the scene and then say some things, enough for you then to start the conversation, which is what you really wanted to do, by reading just from the, the prelim to the book. Ray Davis was the first person to look into the heart of a star. He did so by capturing neutrinos, ghostly particles that are produced in the centre of the sun and stream out across space. As I'm reading this to you, billions of them are hurtling unseen through your eyeballs at almost the speed of light. I say almost the speed of light, not. Right, okay. Just take a note of that. <laughs> Second edition might have to change that one. <laughs> Neutrinos are as near to nothing as anything we know, and so elusive that they are almost invisible. When Davis began looking for them in 1960, many thought he was attempting the impossible. It nearly turned out to be. Forty years would have passed before he was proved right, leading to his Nobel Prize for Physics in 2002, aged 87. And then this is the punchline which sets the scene for things. Longevity is an asset in the neutrino business. Not everyone would be so fortunate. And that's really the, the tragic side of the thing, that he had a collaborator called John Barcall who devoted the whole of his career to this quest. He was the theorist. Um, if I was giving a talk with a PowerPoint, which I'm not, as you can tell, <laughs> just there would be a beautiful picture of John Barcall at the age of 20 wearing a hard hat down the mine where they were starting this experiment. And the top left is a picture of him halfway through the experiment at the age of forty. And the bottom left is a picture of him when the experiment was finally completed and Ray Davies got the Nobel Prize at the end of John Barcall's career. You notice I said, when Ray Davies got the Nobel Prize, for some reason John Barcall wasn't included. And it has been a core celebre in physics ever since. Why didn't he get a fair share of it? But that's that's his story. It's Bruno Corva that fascinated me. But anyway, Um, What's solar neutrinos? We now know that nuclear processes produce neutrinos. In particular, neutrinos produced by the Sun. The fusion of hydrogen in the centre of the Sun to produce helium produces energy as sunlight, but also as neutrinos. And the theorists have calculated that every second the Sun is producing two followed by 38 zeros of neutrinos. Not one followed by, or three followed by, but two followed by 38 zeros. So, you can then do the math, as they say in the States. Um, They spread out in all directions uniformly. How many of them happen to be coming this way through you? And you can work that out, and you'll find that means 50 million per second through your eyeball. Um, In addition, there are neutrinos being produced by radioactivity in the rocks around us, um, rather fewer than from the sun. Each of us is producing neutrinos, about 400 a minute because uh, calcium and potassium in our bones and teeth is mildly radioactive. And so we are, each as I'm speaking here, emitting neutrinos out of the cosmos, which will probably travel without bumping into anything forever, which is probably as near to immortality as we're likely to get, but that's, that's how it is. So <coughs> I drew the analogy. I said that neutrinos that come from the sun are so shy, they, are, they can travel through the Earth as easily as a bullet through a bank of fog which then, of course, raises the question, so how do you detect the things? Um, the answer is you have to be lucky, and it's a bit like the National Lottery, and I'm always confident at this point, has anybody here ever won the big prize on the National Lottery? <laughs> Don't all put your hands up at once, <laughs> right? But each week somebody does, uh, because a lot of people enter, and it's a bit like that with neutrinos. If you have got a source of an, which is producing enough neutrinos and you've got a big enough net, then you might be lucky and occasionally capture one. So that's the idea. So you need to have a big, powerful source of the things. So that's really the story. How did they detect the neutrinos, and what are we doing with them today? Why are they currently exciting? Well, the story really began in 1930 with the Austrian theorist Wolfgang Pauli, not the Australian theorist as Melvin Bragg referred to him on a radio program, but the Austrian theorist Wolfgang Pauli Bruce Pauli is another one. But uh, um, he came up with the idea of the neutrino in order to make the books balance in certain radioactive processes. And uh, he just invented the concept in order to solve one problem. He was not happy with it. He realized quickly that the neutrino was something that was probably totally undetectable. He was so disturbed by the fact that he invented something that could never be tested, he wages a crate of champagne that uh, nobody would ever find it. That was in 1930, 30 31 time. It wasn't until 1956 that he had to pay up the champagne. So that shows you know, how long it, it takes. Um, so the story really then, looking for the neutrino, it was after the Second World War. Um, where are there sources of lots of neutrinos? Well, some guys in America had the great insight that atomic bomb explosions should be producing lots of neutrinos, assuming that neutrinos exist, remember? In 1950, nobody knew for sure. So if neutrinos exist, atomic bomb explosions should be a really good source of them. And so the idea was to just build a detector, place it 10 metres away from an atomic blast and see what (laughs) happens. You can see that this is not exactly a reproducible experiment. (laughs) And then they had the insights that a nuclear reactor would actually do as well. And you could reproduce the experiment because nuclear reactors, they calculated, if they're powerful enough, are producing large numbers of neutrinos every second and maybe you'd be able eventually to capture one. Which indeed was what happened. That two Americans called Cowan and Rhinus detected the neutrino Uh, as a result of this experiment at a reactor in the USA. And it wasn't... And you might have thought Nobel Prize straight away. It wasn't until 1990-something that Rhinus won the Nobel Prize, by which time his collaborator, Clyde Cowan, was dead. So for some strange reason, it took a long, long time before the award was given. That, I discovered only recently, was the first opportunity that Bruno Pontecorvo missed. He fled to the Soviet Union from Harwell in 1950. And he had already had the idea of how to detect neutrinos. He wrote a paper about it, um, detecting neutrinos from the sun, this very idea which Davis then took up, and I'll tell you about in a minute, but also how to detect uh, neutrinos in general. And he arrives, we now know, secretly in Russia, where there was a new laboratory called Dubna, that was then the biggest laboratory in the world. It was five years before CERN had been built, but nobody knew about it outside. Um, And he then said, I would like to do an experiment by building a detector, put it by the nuclear reactor here to detect neutrinos. And they refused to allow him access to the reactor because it was a secret project. So he then said, well, could I go to CERN to do the experiment? Sorry, that's another thing. So that was the first thing that he lost. It was five years later, still before Cowan and ryders had discovered the thing in the States, um, that two young uh, graduate students had the idea of doing this and talked to, New- to Ponte Corvo in Russia. And I-, I now know from them that he showed them you know, his ideas. It was quite clear. He had already worked out everything you needed to do to do the experiments, and he would have presumably found the thing, but he wasn't allowed to do the experiments. So that's the first thing he lost by being in the Soviet Union. So that's the first one. Okay. So Cowan and Rhinus discover the neutrino. So then, where do we come to Davis? Well, Davis, um, he has been working also uh, in the Second World War and he's looking for something to do. And he's reading papers in the library at Brookhaven Lab in 1946 and he sees a paper by Bruno Pontecorvo about neutrinos with the idea that you could detect neutrinos from the sun if you had a target with a lot of chlorine in it. The reason why chlorine is not relevant to this story, but. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> when a neutrino hits the nucleus of an atom, two things happen. The neutrino turns into an electron. So it's, it's come in with no electric charge and it ends up with negative electric charge. So to balance the charge, the charge that was originally on the nucleus must increase by one. So nothing coming in hitting this goes to minus the electron and this moves up one. If this charge moves up one, it's like moving one place at the periodic table. So what Ponte Corvo did, he went right through the periodic table to say, which is the best element that when I hit it, it will create an element which will be easy to detect and free of all the nasty background confusions that might be there. And that's where he came with chlorine, because chlorine is very cheap. Cleaning fluid is a great thing to have it in. And when you hit chlorine, it moves up to argon. Now, argon is chemically inert but the argon is also produced in a radioactive state, which meant that a good radiochemist would be able to detect it. So that was Ponte Corvo's idea. And Ray Davis, who was a radiochemist, reads this paper and says, that's for me. And so Davis then set out to do the experiment. And uh, he ended up doing this down a defunct gold mine in Dakota, about a mile underground. Why a mile underground? Because looking for neutrinos that they're so hard to capture. If you get a signal, you want to be sure you've got the real thing and not some noise from like, cosmic rays, because we're being hit by cosmic rays from outer space all the time. The atmosphere shields us from them, but they still get through. Uh, if you go deep enough underground, then you can shield out the cosmic ray background, and hopefully what you'll be left with are neutrinos, which are the only things that can get through. So that was the idea of going deep underground. We had 400,000 litres of cleaning fluid, carbon tetrachloride. Uh, which were produced at a factory in Kansas and shipped across the states to Dakota in railroad cars. You can do the math of how many railroad cars did it take to shift that amount. It took them about 15 weeks to get it all down a mile underground into this huge tank, and then you wait. Um, And what he did each month was to do some... uh, I'm now talking way beyond my pay grade, how he does the thing, but... uh, Uh, He he had to do some radiochemical analysis to see if there were any radioactive argon atoms in this 400,000 litres. And he ended up detecting about, I think, one or two a month. And then, of course, he had to convince people that that he could genuinely detect one or two radioactive argon atoms a month, and that they were, indeed, caused by nutrients from the sun. And not surprisingly, you know, that took a lot of convincing for people. And it takes a lot of time to accumulate enough data to have a, a, a number that is really measurable. You begin to see why it was 40 years before this whole thing got sorted out. There were a lot of problems along the way. I'm not going to talk about them now. If you want to ask, we can talk about them, but they're all all in here. But one of the problems was that when finally he had convinced people he was detecting nutrients from the sun, the number that he was finding was only about one-third as many as he ought to have found if Barcall's calculations had been correct. And this is where the controversy began. This is when I... He'd been doing these experiments for 10, 15 years when I started as a graduate student, and I remember lots of talks at that time, it was called the solar neutrino problem, that everybody was blaming everybody else, that the physicists, by and large, said, Oh Davis is okay he's got it all right but the astrophysicists they can't possibly calculate neutrons from the sun with that accuracy and the astrophysicists said yes we can it's you guys that're screwing up somewhere a lot of people now we theorists said we don't believe that Davis can count a couple of argon atoms in a 400,000 liter tank of chlorine every month and the experimentalist said yes he can it's John Barcall who's messed up in these calculations and then the theorist went through his calculations and couldn't find any errors in it at all. But you know, it went around like that for a long, long time. What we didn't appreciate at the time was that the answer had been found in the Soviet Union by Bruno Pontecorvo and another man. He had, or well, they had, the suggestion that there is more than one variety of neutrino. We now know that to be true. There are neutrinos that are produced in, uh, along with electrons. We call them electron-type neutrinos. There are also neutrinos produced in other processes with exotic things called muons. We call them muon-type neutrinos. And today we know of a third type. So Ponte had the idea, there's more than one type of neutrino. The sun is producing this type, but in the 150 million kilometre journey across space, it can, by weird things of quantum mechanics, it can change its identity. It starts off this type, but it can turn into the other one along the way and back again. They can oscillate between these two types and by the time they have got here you've got like a a 50-50 chance of it being what it started out with and Davis's experiment can only detect this particular type of neutrino so if half of them have disappeared along the way to the other form Davis wouldn't detect them in fact we now know that there are three varieties and indeed the one that sets out has by and large ended up only one-third have remained in that variety by the time they got here the rest of them are the other two and that Davis's experiment was correctly picking up the one-third that he was sensitive to. But that was not finally sorted out until 2000 by a special experiment in Canada that was very cleverly done and sensitive to all the varieties of neutrinos. And when that was finally done, it showed that the total arriving here was exactly what the theory said should be the case, if indeed the sun is a fusion reactor in the sky, which we now know, because the numbers balance and that Davies had been right all along. And the reason why Davies hadn't found enough wasn't because Barcourt had screwed up. Barcourt had done his calculations right. It was because the Neutrinos changed their identities on the route, which is what Ponte Corvo had said. Unfortunately, Ponte died in 1993. So he never even lived long enough to see that his ideas were correct, let alone share in Davies' Nobel Prize. So that's the second one that he lost, but that was because he didn't survive long enough. The third one that he lost was this idea that there's more than one variety of neutrino. I mean, those of you who've met particle nuclear physics, you've heard of the standard model, but who was it? Was the first person that came up with the first bit of the standard model? I think, actually, it was Bruno Pontecorvo. In 1946, he'd identified that the electron, that, that what we call the muon, is a heavy version of the electron. It was he that first really identified that and that there are two varieties of neutrino, one associated with electrons, one associated with a muon. That is the beginning of what we now call the standard model. How do you test that idea? He came up in the 1970s with the tests that the arrival of high-energy accelerators like CERN and Brookhaven in America, he realised, gave the possibility to do an experiment to see if there really were two varieties of neutrino. Why didn't he do it at Dubna? because the Dubna facility was, well, it was never really very good. He'd given up his life to go and work there. The reason why it wasn't very good was that they didn't have the electronics that America had and we in the West had. So the experiment, he couldn't do it at Dubna. He then applied to be allowed to go to CERN to do the experiment, and they refused to allow him out of the Soviet Union. So he wrote the paper up, uh, and it was published in Russian, in the Russian journal. In those days, you didn't get Russian journals out here. They were translated into English, which you saw about a couple of years later. In that two years, people in the States, completely independently, had had the idea and done the experiment. Steinberger, Schwartz and Lederman, they are called and they shared the Nobel Prize for that discovery. So that's definitely one that Ponte Corvo would have won had he had the opportunity to do it. And Mel Schwartz and his Nobel address cites Ponte Corvo specifically. So Ponte Corvo's decision to go to the Soviet Union in 1950. If he was a spy, as some people thought, he paid dearly. So uh, Davis detected neutrinos from the sun. That is now, I would say, the beginning of what we call neutrino astronomy. The only other um, source out there that's ever been detected in neutrinos was a supernova in 1987. and. That is itself remarkable, that there's now much... So, following Davis, they now do big experiments with tanks of water the size of a swimming pool, Um, because if a neutrino uh, bumps into an atom in the water, it can reveal itself by a series of processes. And um, at these big detectors, like in Japan, I think they would detect probably about a dozen neutrinos per day so that gives you an idea. It's still a slow business, but he was getting better. Um, and one morning in February 1987, mm-hmm. a dozen neutrinos passed through in the space of a few seconds at our breakfast time. And they were the neutrinos that had come from this supernova. Now, the supernova didn't happen in 1987. It happened 187,000 years ago because it was in the large Magellanic cloud, which is 187,000 light years away. And I just find this remarkable. Let's just think a second. I don't know what was happening in Oxford 187,000 years ago, but not very much. Mm-hmm. But that's when this supernova happens. And it beams out neutrinos. According to theory, I mean, a supernova shines in the sky as bright as a whole galaxy. But the theory said it would shine, quote, in neutrinos. 99% of the energy is emitted in neutrinos, according to theory. So it's like 100 times brighter in neutrinos than even what you see. Um, So these neutrinos are blasting out over space. They've travelled for 186,000 years, and that brings us to about the Norman Conquest. And they travel on for another uh, 950 years, and this guy, Pauli, comes up with the idea of a neutrino. They travel for another 40 years, and Cowan and Rhinus discover that neutrinos (laughs) are for real. They travel now for 186,998 years, and by total luck this big detector underground in Japan is completed. And they carry on, pass that detector, and now they're another 20 light years out, whichever way Mars is. <laughs> beyond. No, they've carried on. So this, this, this wave of neutrinos has spread out, making a sphere that's expanding for 187,000 years, so that when they happen to pass through the detector on Earth, they were a, they were a sphere that was as big as the Milky Way galaxy. Now, without doing any sums, you can already get a feeling of how powerful a supernova must be. They've, there's this sphere the size of the Milky Way galaxy, and they have passed through your detector, a dozen of them in a couple of seconds, compared with the Sun, which is only eight light minutes away, which gives you a dozen a day. So that already shows you that you've got, a, you've got them much faster, they've travelled much further, And indeed, they've got about 10 to 100 times more energy. When you do all the sums together, it turned out that the energy emitted by a supernova was indeed what the theory said if a supernova is indeed the result of a star collapsing, leaving you with a neutron star and neutrinos that blast out. Basically, the electrons and protons whizzing around in the star that collapse down, the electron and proton come together, their electric charge cancelling, giving you a neutron which stays behind. That's the neutron star and neutrino blast that comes out. So we now know that supernovas are what the theorists said, and we know it because we detected the neutrinos. So this weird ghostly particle is now en- enabling us to look inside supernova, not just the sun. So to end the story, um, what's now happening is the idea that could we detect the stars in the night sky by their neutrinos? After all, all stars are, we believe by theory, nuclear reactors in a way, and should be producing neutrinos. But you can get a sense of the challenge here because the night sky is pretty dim compared to daylight. And presumably the same is true for the neutrinos in the night sky. They will be, relative to neutrinos in the sun, pretty feeble. And as I said, capturing neutrinos from the sun, you only get like a dozen a day. So how are you going to detect neutrinos from the night sky? You need a huge detector, and no government's going to pay you that sort of money. But the clever idea has been to use natural detectors. For example, the ice in the Antarctic, which is frozen water. Now, ice in the Antarctic is not like the ice in your drink. It's crystal clear. It's the result of snow having fallen for tens of thousands of years and packed up. So if somebody would make a little flashlight under the ice there, you'd be able to see it miles away. And basically, that's the idea. If a neutrino bumps into an atom in that ice, it will emit a flash of light which can be detected by special phototubes. They, what they've done, they've drilled holes through the ice by you know, blasting steam down. You send a phototube down and leave it there forever and pick up the passage of these neutrinos. That's just beginning. Uh, there's a couple of experiments. One is called IceCube, obviously. Go to Google. Don't put in ice cube, otherwise you'll get rock groups and things. But IceCube experiment, and it will tell you everything that, that is going on. And so that, I think, is going to be a real beginning of neutrino astronomy. And. Uh, What's going to be new is what you're going to be asking. What are you hoping to find? Well, of course, nature knows the answer to that. We don't, but there's things that you can strategically think you might hope for. First of all, it's quite a shock to realise that it's only in the last 60 years that we've looked into the heavens in anything other than optical astronomy. You know, as kids, you start looking through a telescope, you're just using the rainbow of light, which is just a single octave in the whole electromagnetic spectrum. It's only in the last half century that radio astronomy and infrared astronomy and X-ray and gamma-ray astronomy have taken place. They have led to discoveries of quasars and pulsars and things that nobody ever dreamed of. So that shows you how remarkable it is when you open up the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum. Neutrinos do not feel electromagnetic forces. They are something totally different. In that sense, it's a completely new way of sensing what's going on out there. So the things that you could immediately say you might hope to look for are this. We know from the Big Bang that there's the microwave background radiation, which is a nice spectrum of blackbody radiation. The theory says there should be a similar spectrum of neutrinos. And the question is if you can detect neutrinos from the Big Bang, which have been flying around for 13 and a half billion years without bumping into anything until they happen to reveal themselves in the Antarctic ice, is that spectrum identical to that of the microwave background or different? And depending on whether the answer is yes or no, what does that tell us? Um, Will there be blips of intensity at certain points on that spectrum? And if so, where do they come from? Well, that we expect the answer is yes. I mean, we know, for example, the sun is putting out neutrinos of certain energies and the stars likewise. But suppose that you find an intensity of some energy that doesn't fit in with anybody's theory. Where's that coming from? You know, that's excitement that you can have. You might be able to detect um, black holes being formed, galaxies colliding. Who knows? But the thing that excites me about it is, I will just finish what i finished the book with, it's a quote from John Bach Hall, the man who got left out of the Nobel Prize, if I can read it in the light here, his point was this, if you can measure something accurately enough you have a chance of discovering something important the history of astronomy shows that it is very likely that what you discover will not be what you were looking for and then he added, with typical modesty, it helps to be lucky. Which, regrettably, he wasn't. <laughs> but uh, that's really the beginning of, I think, a new area of science. I haven't said anything at all about neutrinos travelling faster than light. Um, but you'll want to know about it. So just to set the scene for that, I'll just take two more minutes. Which is that this idea of Ponte Corvo's that neutrinos can change their variety as they travel across space. One of the reasons that people didn't take that seriously was because that can only happen in quantum mechanics if neutrinos have mass. And we all believe that neutrinos were massless. We now know they do have a mass, but very, very tiny. But so tiny we've not yet been able to measure it. But if they do have a mass, as we now know, measuring it is very important for a variety of reasons. And the way, or a way, that one is trying to get a handle on that is to see if we can capture neutrinos changing from one variety to another en route. Not just sitting here 150 million kilometres away from the sun, where they've sort of done it and averaged out, but at smaller distances. And that is what the idea of this experiment that's made all the excitement at CERN and Rome recently is. That at CERN, they can produce by collisions of particles beams of neutrinos of quite high energy. High energy neutrinos, it turns out, are much easier to detect than low-energy ones from the sun. Um, So they make these beams of hydrogen neutrinos which are fired through the Earth in the direction of Rome because under the mountains near Rome is a laboratory which is detecting the neutrinos from CERN. And the purpose of that experiment, and what it was all designed to do, was to detect neutrinos coming from CERN and see how many are the same variety that CERN was producing and how many are a different variety. And from that, hopefully begin to learn about all this neutrino oscillation business. So that's what they were trying to do, and have been doing very successfully, and the experiment was designed that an end, at its end. Then, along the way, it turned out that they noticed that the time that the neutrinos are believed to leave CERN, and the time that they're believed to arrive here gives you a measure of time with a certain amount of uncertainty, a few nanoseconds uncertainty, if you know the distance from here to Rome to within a few centimetres, in a distance of 750 kilometres, you've got the distance within a pretty high accuracy. Then you take the ratio of distance to time, and you've got the speed. And when you do that, it appears that the neutrino's speed is one pass in 100,000 more than the speed of light. In other words, it's 100,001 compared to 100,000 relative to the speed of light, very, very subtle or put it another way, they've arrived about 20 nanoseconds earlier than you would have expected. If that is true, then the neutrinos have travelled through the Earth faster than light, which is the sort of speed limit uh, of nature falling from relativity and so on. I say if that is true, because it is not what you actually do. You don't have a neutrino leave CERN at this instance and detect it at the other end at this instance. Uh, there's a lot of subtleties involved which they take into account I should say that when the neutrino hits the detector in Rome an electronic signal travels down some wires which takes time a few nanoseconds. But we're dealing here in nanoseconds. <laughs> it takes a few nanoseconds to come around the wire. It goes into the computer system. There are nanoseconds when things get held up between all the weird and wonderful things that happen in computer signals. They take all these things into account. It gives them uncertainties of several nanoseconds, but the signal difference that they're finding is still outside those uncertainties. But it does raise a question. Are there further subtle things going on that mean that there are further uncertainties of a few nanoseconds, which would actually mean that the signal isn't a signal, it's just lost in the noise? And that's the big question that's now trying to be settled. And they're doing a customized experiment designed Hopefully to avoid some of the uncertainties which will only produce about one neutrino per day so it will take a long time. Um, But Well, not a long time. Hopefully by January, February if there's something weird going on one will begin to know it. Um, But that is the state of the art. I know you're going to ask more and more questions about it. Um, If somebody's got a theory about neutrinos going faster than light keep it to yourself. (laughs) So that's Is where I'll shut up. It just occurred to me, oh that clock is right. I thought for a moment it'd been sitting at the same position all the time. (laughs) Um, But maybe it's not a neutrino clock. Okay. Right. Anyway, if you want to ask questions, do so. Otherwise I'll have a drink. Thank you. That's a fair question. Um, that's actually a very good question, uh, because um, in the case of Davis's experiment, he couldn't. Can you the question, yes, well, the question was how. Um, well, how did you? Let, let me phrase it another way for you. How did you know that the neutrinos were going that way and not that way? How do you know that they came from the sun and not from somewhere else? Was the is that a fair summary of the thing? Um, in the case of Ray Davis's experiment, he couldn't. All that he was able to do was to say at the end of each month, um, a handful of neutrinos from somewhere had bumped into the atoms in his detector. And so that was one of the challenges, was to convince people that he was even seeing things from the sun. And more and more tests were done to try to ensure there weren't any other sources of radioactivity around. There were other sources of radioactivity, and these were were sort of taken into account. He eventually convinced people that he had a signal of some sort, which was consistent with solar neutrinos, but technically he didn't know they came from the sun. The experiments underground in these big water tanks, however, can tell you that they come from the sun, because what's happening there is a different effect. A neutrino coming in from some place out of space bumps into an atom in the water, and the neutrino then turns into an electron. So the electron is now shooting through the water, and it's shooting through the water faster than the speed of light in water. I will say that again carefully so that you don't think I've said something I haven't done. Relativity says that there is a maximum speed limit in a vacuum. So let's say the speed of light in a vacuum is the height of the ceiling. When light goes through a medium like water, it goes slower, say this fast, relative to the ceiling. It is possible for an electron to go through glass or water faster than that, but still lower than the ceiling, so it doesn't violate anything. When that happens, something analogous to a supersonic plane bang happens. You know, when when a plane goes through the atmosphere faster than the speed of sound, you get a sonic boom. If an electric charge goes through water faster than the speed of light in water, you get an electromagnetic boom. It's called Cherenkov radiation, which spreads out through the water like a cone. It hits phototubes all around the outside, which send the signal to the computer. The result of this is they're able, of course, to tell exactly when it happened, because the computer says, oh, that happened at seven minutes past seven tonight. They can tell which direction it was coming from, the way the thing was going through the water. It was coming from down there. And then you check with the computer, and you find that at seven minutes past seven, that's where the sun is, in that direction. And then tomorrow morning, you might be lucky and get another one that you find came from up there, and that is where the sun is. You also check on the computer. So you can actually tell where they come from. And I have an image. I call it a, It's not a photograph of the sun with neutrinos. It's a neutrino graph of the sun. And so it is possible to now tell the direction that things come from. But Davis couldn't. Yep. Um, when there was the, the supernova that was detected in Japan? Did anyone detect this light? Right. So the question was when the supernova was detected um, in 1987 uh, did anybody also detect it in light? The, the answer is yes. I mean, let, let me now translate because the question you're really implying here is Before or after. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so well the answer is yes it was seen in light because but they didn't see the instant it happened in light because you you weren't just looking in that direction in the sky some amateur astronomer suddenly noticed there was a light in the sky where there hadn't been one about three or four hours before the last time that anybody looked so they they know that it was visible in light at least by let's say 8 o'clock in the morning on that day but when exactly it happened they don't know in the light Uh, they know exactly when it happened in neutrinos because the neutrinos pass through the detector and the The clocks told you when it was. So the question is what can we infer from that, if anything? Well, if you take the result, the apparent result of this experiment from CERN, which says that neutrinos, after travelling 750 kilometres, arrive 20 nanoseconds early and scale 750 kilometres up to 187,000 light years your 20 nanoseconds scales up to four days. So that would say that the neutrinos from the supernova ought to have arrived four days earlier than anybody saw the supernova. And that ain't the case. Um, so there's an inconsistency there. Unless you say, ah, but the energy of the neutrinos at CERN is much larger than the energy of the neutrinos from the supernova, maybe you can still make it consistent. You know. But you start getting a sense that, uh, that one's wriggling. But um, it's, a, it's a fair question, and people are suddenly worried about that straight off. Yeah? Hi. Um, why, do why do photons interact much more frequently than neutrinos with matter? So the question is, why do photons interact much more frequently than neutrinos? There's four fundamental forces at work in nature, and they have different strengths. I mean, gravity is the one that's most familiar. Um, actually, at the level of individual particles, gravity is very small, it's just that gravity adds up, so the whole of the Earth is, is uh, attracting us. But the other three forces, the electromagnetic force, and then there's the weak and strong forces. Known as weak and strong because of their relative strengths compared to electromagnetic. The neutrino has no, so photons are the, they feel electromagnetic forces, they're the, 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 the agents that transmit electromagnetic forces. Neutrinos have no electric charge, they do not feel the electromagnetic force, they do not feel the strong force, they feel the weak force. The fact empirically that the weak force is weak compared to the electromagnetic is the reason why the likelihood of neutrinos interacting is very small compared with the likelihood of photons and and electrons interacting. Is that okay for you? Yeah, thank you. Is that it? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, there's one down front. Yeah. Just one. So, if neutrinos have mass, then surely they are acting on by gravitational. Yes. Yeah. And does that not produce a drag on them and slow them down eventually? I mean, you seem to say they go on there. So the question was, uh, if neutrinos have mass, they will be affected by the gravitational force, um, so the and will that not have a drag on them? The answer is yes, but it is so triflingly small that it would be sort of effectively immeasurable. But it's an interesting question, which I thought you know it might actually set to the stick If any of my students are here now, shut your ear. But I, I've got, I've first, I've first of all, I've got to work out the answer. But you, know, uh, no, if, if you can say if a neutrino of energy, whatever, uh, how long does it have to travel? it affected or by a constant gra- I mean, to make it simple. Let's say it was feeling the strength of the Earth gravity that's, uh, for a period of time. I mean, the answer will be something triflingly small, but it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, th- that actually is a be clever way for the students to answer it. Right. So, <laughs> a clever student will say, we, we know from Eddington uh, 1919, or whenever it was, when they tested Einstein's theory of general relativity and noticed that gravity acts on light because the star during a total eclipse was deflected slightly. They were able to measure how much bending around the sun the light beam had. You could then take the strength of the weak force compared to electromagnetic force and use that as a starter to see how much would a neutrino uh, uh, be. And, uh but it doesn't solve the problem of CERN to. Rome, that I can guarantee. If okay. <laughs> um, there's no more questions, if there's no more questions out there. please join me in thanking Frank for a really enjoyable and great talk, and I know is going to stay around, so if you want to have a chance to talk with him a bit on your own, write a copy of his book, and also he's got a new book coming out called the Infinity Puzzle, which is fishing a bit of dirt on the Nobel Prize winners, and should or should they not get the prizes? He's also very happy to talk about that if you want <laughs> to Well, the, the, the point, anybody here who's heard of Peter Higgs and the Higgs boson, which everybody has, what's it all about? Should it be named after him? And when it's discovered, should he or somebody else get the Nobel Prize? There are. I'll give you the answer. On the back of the book, Peter Hink says, it is a pleasure to read a book by somebody who both knows the field and has carefully researched conflicting versions. Which means I well, obviously come out on his side, but there you are. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Not at all. I'm joined today by Professor Frank Close, who's Professor of Physics at Oxford University. He's going to be talking to us about neutrinos. So, Frank, what is a neutrino? Well, neutrinos are little particles. They're shy and ghostly things. They're passing through you right now. The sun produces them. Any nuclear process produces them. But the sun's producing billions and billions and billions every second, which fly out into space. And about 50 million of them each second are passing through your eyeball without you being aware of it. And uh, They're weird. They have been around since the Big Bang. The chances are that they fly through the universe without bumping into anything. They can fly through the earth as easily as a bullet can pass through a bank of fog. Which of course begs the question, so how do we know about them? The answer is well. that you need a very big net to capture them. The analogy that I use is, I mean, I bet that nobody listening to this podcast will have won the big prize on the national lottery. But enough people enter that somebody is lucky and it's a bit like that with neutrinos. If you have enough neutrinos to enter the lottery, you might be lucky and capture one occasionally. So you need very big nets to capture them with, very big detectors in the jargon, tanks of water that are bigger than an Olympic swimming pool, or the latest thing that's going on is using the ice in the Antarctic, using hundreds of kilometers of ice with special phototube detectors So these are sort of dug in and buried into the ice? That's right. Dug in is an interesting one. In fact, the way they dig them in to the ice is to drill holes with steam. Then you lower the tubes down, spread them over about 100 kilometres square. Um, Because ice in the Antarctic isn't like ice in your Scotch on the rocks. It's clearer than glass. I mean, it's the result of snow that's been falling for 10,000 years, and it's a kilometre deep, really compressed. So if uh, somebody sort of little match beneath the ice, you'd be able to see the light, you know, miles away. And so if a neutrino bumps into an atom of the ice and makes a flash of light, that flash can be detected by a photo tube, which sends the signal to a computer. And, well, what are we doing it for? Or what are they doing it for? I'm not an experimentalist, I'm just talking about it. Is the hope that one can see the night sky in neutrinos. We've seen the sun in neutrinos, that's very difficult, Uh, but we can do it. But the night sky and neutrinos will be as dim compared to the neutrinos in the sun as the regular night sky is to daylight. So, so what would you be looking for in there from the night sky? Would that be like remnants of supernovas that kind of thing? Whatever nature's got to offer is the <laughs> answer. <laughs> Whatever's out there. Um, the thing is that this is a totally new form of astronomy. I'm calling it neutrino astronomy. Different to anything that's ever been done before. That, you know, as kids, you start off looking at the night sky through a telescope. Well, we're looking with just one octave in the spectrum of light. I mean, the rainbow of light that our eyes can respond to is just a single octave in a vast range of electromagnetic radiation. Radio waves, infrared, ultraviolet, X-rays, gamma rays and so on. It's quite a shock to realize it's only about 60 years ago that anybody looked into the night sky for anything other than ordinary light. All of the amazing discoveries of pulsars, quasars and the like that have happened from radio astronomy and gamma ray astronomy are all in the last half century because one opened up the electromagnetic spectrum. So what's this got to do with neutrinos? The point is neutrinos do not respond to electromagnetic forces. They are completely novel and different. And we know that the processes in stars produce them. Uh, The theory of what happened in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang says that neutrinos would have been produced there. So there are neutrinos flying around and through us as we talk. Uh, that came from the Big Bang. So just like the microwave background radiation remnant of the Big Bang in electromagnetic radiation was detected 40, 50 years ago, so theoretically there should be a similar spectrum of neutrinos left over from the Big Bang. So one of the things that one would hope to be able to detect is that background radiation of neutrinos. Is the spectrum of those exactly the same as those of the conventional microwave background radiation or different? And if the answer to that is yes or no, what does that imply? Are there, are there blips of intensity on that spectrum? And if so, where do they come from? Well, we, we know that there will be, because we know that the Sun, for example, produces neutrinos of characteristic energies, but other stars should as well. And to that extent, one sort of knows what to look for. So the excitement would be if you find something else, and then you say, oh, where's that coming from? Is it black holes being formed, galaxies colliding? Who knows what? The whole story of neutrinos has been that you set out to look for something and what you discovered was something totally unexpected. And I have no doubt that's what will happen with neutrino astronomy too. So I've got one question, which is, if there's millions of these neutrinos spewing through us all the time, how do we know, for example, from the, the Opera experiment, that you've detected a neutrino from CERN? This is what a lot of excitement about recently, the idea that do neutrinos travel faster than light? To which my answer is probably not. Um, but what they were doing at CERN is, you can create neutrinos in, as the result of particle collision at accelerators. And the neutrinos that you're producing there are very high energy compared to those from the sun. So it's much easier to detect them. When I say, you know, can travel through the earth like a bullet through a bank of fog, that's true for the low energy neutrinos from the sun. But high energy ones, it's much easier to capture them. And that's why we know actually so much about them there. So they were firing these through the earth in order that an experiment in Rome, 750 kilometres away, could detect them to see if what arrived was the same as set out. I mean, what, what does that mean? There are different types of neutrino, it turns out, and we now know that in the course of flying through space, like a leopard changing its spots, one can change into the other and back and forward. And that's a very interesting thing for science. It tells us indirectly that neutrinos must have a little mass. So small we've not been able to measure it yet, but that's what we're trying to do. But that's very important. If they have masses, they Outweigh everything in the universe. There's so many of them. So this experiment was set up to try to see how many of the neutrinos had changed their flavour, in the jargon, in that 750 million kilometre journey, and that's what the experiment was set up to do. In uh, the result of this, they noticed that the time that the neutrinos arrived at their detector, compared with the time that they appeared to set out from CERN, seemed to be a little bit shorter than you would have expected if. The speed of light is the maximum you know the distance from cern to rome exactly i mean to an accuracy with less than a centimeter or two in 750 kilometers and you can measure the time that the neutrinos are taken to accuracies of a few nanoseconds then you can measure the speed by the ratio of distance to time to fairly some precise measurements involved fairly precise so the result when they do this is that it looks as if the amount of time that it took to get there was about 20 nanoseconds less than it ought to have been, with some uncertainty. And this is the whole business, because how do you measure these things? You know, a neutrino hits something in your detector which sends an electronic signal. It takes time for the signal to flow down the wires of the computer. The various weird little things in that computer black box take time to respond. When I say time, I'm talking nanoseconds, but Seems the whole experiment is trying to detect things on the scale of nanoseconds, each of these bits of accounting gets very important. So you can see it's much less direct than you might think. And the whole question is, is there something additional that has been overlooked that sort of takes another few nanoseconds before the whole thing gets recorded or not? Well, at the moment we don't know. But the experiment is much more subtle and indirect than probably people generally realise. And it wasn't set up to do this particular thing that it may or may not have discovered. So now what is being done is to try to do the experiment in a different way specifically aimed at trying to time individual neutrinos and this is when it gets difficult because what they were doing at CERN before was producing neutrinos in large amounts so that you had a reasonable chance of detecting a few each day. To do this experiment now to see how long a neutrino takes one by one means you're using much more diffuse beams of neutrinos and you may get one event per day so it'll take quite a while before you've accumulated enough data to be sure one way or the other but you know these are exciting times that's what science is all about well Professor McClure, thank you very much thank you for listening to our podcast we hope you enjoyed it details of our upcoming events can be found at our website www.oxfordscibar.com you can also follow us on twitter at oxfordscibar and on facebook British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.